Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, today we'll consider the dangerous ignorance of Adam Smith, good old Captain Capitalism himself. Now, last time we considered some of his dangerous wisdom, and we'll consider a little more of that, but we're going to give serious attention to some of his dangerous ignorance. In fact, we'll get at what might be the most dangerous of his dangerous ignorance. In our last contemplation, we reflected on three interrelated gems of dangerous wisdom that we find in the writings of Adam Smith the name most strongly associated with capitalism. First, in considering capitalism, Smith says, we face a fork in the road. We face a decision between two very different paths, the path of wisdom and virtue on the one hand and the path of capitalism on the other, which we can characterize as the path of ignorance and vice. That'll become even clearer today. Secondly, Smith says, only the path of wisdom and virtue can bring us true happiness and peace. This makes the true wealth of nations a matter of the level of wisdom, love, and beauty in the culture, not gross domestic product or profits. Thirdly, and this one's very much implied in the first two, Smith says the path of capitalism can never bring us true happiness and peace and further that chasing wealth, power, fame, and conventional success amounts to chasing frivolous trinkets. That's right, frivolous trinkets, so says Captain Capitalism himself. And we find a tragedy in the dangerous wisdom of Adam Smith, or, I mean, we could call the tragic part of it the dangerous ignorance, because he ends up endorsing a path of life a path for entire nations of people that he himself acknowledges as a path of chasing frivolous trinkets that can never secure our fullest happiness and peace. As we contemplated that last point, I thought of another passage from Smith's work that makes it maybe in some ways a little sharper, but we had already considered so many things that it seemed wise to save that passage for another time, and we can consider it now as a way both to remind ourselves of what we considered last time and to carry ourselves forward into fresh insights. This is a slightly longer passage, and I'll let you know when we come to the end of it. And I should add that it, it comes across out loud a little awkward. On the page it makes sense, but Smith's style of writing here isn't so great for reading aloud, but I do want to read you this little passage, and again, I'll let you know when we get to the end. So, in his theory of moral sentiments, Smith writes, quote, What the favorite of the king of Epirus said to his master may be applied to men in all the ordinary situations of human life. When the king had recounted to him, in their proper order, all the conquests which he proposed to make, and had come to the last of them. And what does your majesty propose to do then? said the favorite. 
I propose then, said the king, to enjoy myself with my friends and endeavor to be good company over a bottle. And what hinders your majesty from doing so now? replied the favorite. Examine the records of history. Recollect what has happened within the circle of your own experience. Consider with attention what has been the conduct of almost all the greatly unfortunate, either in private or public life, whom you may have either read of or heard of or remember. And you will find that the misfortunes of by far the greater part of them have arisen from their not knowing when they were well, when it was proper for them to sit still and be contented. The inscription upon the tombstone of the man who had endeavored to mend a tolerable constitution by taking physic. I was well, I wished to be better. Here I am. That may generally be applied with great justness to the distress of disappointed avarice and ambition. That's the end of the passage. I wonder if Smith's unconscious mind put this image forward for us because Adam Smith comes across as rather incoherent. I think we might have mentioned that last time. By that I mean Smith recognized the deep faults of what we call capitalism while still recommending it. We're not talking about surface problems or something like a nuanced or paradoxical view. Nor can we credit Adam Smith with transcending that foolish consistency that Emerson called the hobgoblin of little minds. Smith just wasn't that level of genius, and he most certainly was no sage. Rather, Adam Smith recognized fundamental problems with taking the road of materialism over the road of wisdom and virtue. And then he recommended doing it anyway. That's incoherent. Incoherence is a hobgoblin of little intellectuals, a mischievous spirit of their mental household that reveals their lack of deeper wisdom. Socrates made a lot of enemies by conjuring forth the incoherence of his fellow citizens, including the rich and famous. This story about the king of Epirus, along with other ideas and stories that Smith shares, makes it rather clear that following the road of ignorance and vice the path of materialism, the path of capital, the path of extrinsic self-enhancing values. Following that path can make us unable to see that we're okay, unable to cultivate the nature and causes of being truly well. The pattern of insanity we refer to as capitalism cuts us off from the great perfection of life and the great connectedness of life. And it puts peace and happiness somewhere in the future, after we get plenty of material stuff that can't make us truly okay. What a tragic situation! We go down a road thinking it will make us happy, but it is precisely that road which will cover over our happiness and put us out of touch with happiness and peace. 
we may find that humanity's tombstone will read, We were well. We had no idea how to be better. Here we are. Sort of brings to mind as well our, I think, our first contemplation of this, uh, this series of dangerous wisdom contemplations, the apocalyptic love wisdom, when we talked about that, that movie, Don't Look Up. It's, it's like the grand realization in the final scene of the movie that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio supposedly improvised. If you haven't seen it, it's worth watching. Now, none of what we're saying means people can't find relative pleasure and relative contentment in the capitalist system. People can project meaning into their lives, and they can feel very self-satisfied. And when we have enough money, it can insulate us from a lot of catastrophes that would otherwise cause suffering for us. I mean, we've created a situation in which poverty buys you misery. Money can't buy you happiness, but we've just made this context such that poverty buys you significant misery. But there is a way then, because of that, in which we can use materialism to make our lives more comfortable in a relative sense. But the wisdom traditions are very clear about this, and Smith agrees with them. We cannot get true happiness and true peace outside of wisdom, love, and beauty. And those do not come from the marketplace. We could see this as one of the strangest features of the capitalist marketplace that we have made so central to our culture and our lives that it will never give us what we most need and value. But we all exist in a complex medium of propaganda and indoctrination that seduces us or programs us into thinking that whatever good has happened over the past 200-plus years, we have to credit that good to capitalism. Catastrophes, on the other hand, those either happen by acts of God or because of socialism or government regulation. And we're going to call out that little bit of BS for what it is. As we already pointed out, we can't even eat the fish in our rivers and lakes in the United States without risking our health. If you live in the U.S. and you go fishing at a lake, eating that fish might be equivalent to drinking contaminated water for a month. Our unconscious mind begins to erupt in relation to these sorts of things we end up projecting the shadows of capitalism and our materialist culture onto other people and other cultures. So many of the things people in the dominant culture get reactive about relate to the problems with capitalism we all have some awareness of. And then we project them onto other peoples and other groups. I mean, who do we think poisoned these fish? Was it Crazy liberals? Was it tree huggers? Was it somebody on welfare? Was it a bunch of socialists? No, it was DuPont, 3M, and other corporations. And they did that because their goal is not the health of our waterways. Their goal is to make money. And if making money means that our rivers and lakes get poisoned, well, then they're going to get poisoned. That's just the logic of this system. Because of this, we find an incredible irony when people start yelling about big government. Now, from a certain perspective, I agree, I don't want big government either. 
Capitalists and their political servants always say we need to get big government off our backs. They say big government is interfering with innovation. All this is a lie. It's a huge lie. What's interfering with real innovation? Again, I, I don't want big government, but big business is a far bigger threat to us all. Big business is on our back like a radioactive gorilla, and it constrains us in a thousand ways. And maybe we shouldn't even say that big business is on our back. Maybe we should be more accurate and say big business functions like an imperial commander that has its jackboot to our throat. And we don't fully realize that we can barely breathe because we're just so used to it. This issue relates to one of the most important elements of dangerous wisdom we touched on in our last contemplation. It didn't come from Adam Smith. Rather, Adam Smith tried to avoid or evade it. The dangerous wisdom we brought into focus has to do with our shared ecological and spiritual commons. We share values and ecological relationships that go directly against the capitalist framework. And capitalism functions by means of fragmentation and disconnection. The economic regime that dominates our lives falsely assumes we don't have to act collectively. This arises as a symptom of the fragmentation at its heart. The system treats us as atomized individuals and encourages self-centered thought. Now, again, I'm not talking about leaping into socialism or some kind of, you know, the collective is more important than the individual. No, we can preserve the sanctity of the individual without making us atomized and self-centered and without denying the fact that we have to coordinate, we have to work together and collaborate, and that we have real strength, real value. There is wealth in our relationships. But we get seduced into a distaste for collective action and for collaboration. We suffer a loss of skill in thinking, debating, and creating together. We need to recover some of this. We need to recover the skills necessary for sitting in council together and thinking by means of wise and creative dialogue, dreaming, singing, storytelling, and more. Recovering the commons means recovering relationality and recovering a participatory orientation toward both nature and culture. That's how you get rid of big government. Everybody's the government. Then you don't need government. And to do that, we need to liberate our basic goodness. One of the problems with capitalism comes down to this. Our basic goodness cannot be put to the ends of goodness itself in that system. Whatever good is in us, or whatever good we can practice and realize in our life, the capitalist system will restrain that good. It restrains it in every way it can. The only end that our intelligence and creativity, our life energy, can be put to in the capitalist system is making products and profits. We cannot put our life energy, our creative intelligence to use in increasing the level of wisdom, love, and beauty in the world, increasing the vitality of the world, 
making the rivers and lakes healthy, making the forests and oceans abundant. That's not part of the system. Now, of course, with the greenwashing of capitalism, that tells us, well, yes, we can clean up the rivers and lakes, but only if we can find a profit in doing that. Now, this is insane. The rivers and lakes were healthy before we started trying to make money doing things that degraded them. It's almost insulting to have ruined the rivers and lakes and then come around and say, well, you know, if we can find a way to make money cleaning them up, then we'll clean them up. Why on earth would we ever trust the same process that ruined them to clean them up? Now look how well that worked out in the case of the Exxon Valdez, which I wish we could get to today. I don't think we're going to have time. But how could we possibly trust that process? It's not only the very same process that poisoned the water— It's the same process that gives us cigarettes, junk food, and genetically modified crops. The same process that gives us social media, predatory loans, and mass surveillance. The same process that gives us cancer, heart disease, and dementia. The same process that gives us anxiety, depression, and loneliness. This all has to do with the countless ways big business is on our backs. In our brains, even. Big business messes up our rivers and lakes. Big business pollutes our air. Big business lies to us and tells us what to do. Now, this manipulation and control, we can see it everywhere. We see this in the struggle over working from home or the things we read about Twitter. Imagine what it must be like to work for Elon Musk. And this all reminds us that big business tries to control where we go, how we dress, whom we talk to, and for how long. In many places, big business regulates when employees can eat, when they can go to the bathroom, and more. Big business also has the power to falsely, bogusly, and oppressively declare that we are not official employees, but just independent contractors. And that just forces us to pay to work. They make more money, and we make less. Big business villainizes unions and unleashes task forces to stop our attempts to organize ourselves as as workers. They feed us a buffet of lies about unions, even though unions have done so much good for humanity. And if, against all their dirty tricks, we succeed in setting up a union... Big business will close the place down rather than deal with workers who collaborate. We can see that, say, just the example of Starbucks. They close the store down if they unionize. Adam Smith recognized the nature of this tension between capitalism and human welfare. And he recognized the imbalance between capitalists and workers. He recognized that free markets are not truly free. Not least because workers cannot last long without jobs, while capitalists have enough wealth to go without employees if they have to. And these days it's as easy as changing countries if you need to. Employees in the U.S. start to be too much trouble, go to Mexico. You have trouble there? Well, head to Thailand. Trouble there? Go to China. Under the regime of capitalism, 
big business does all it can to disempower us. And we lose control of our lives because big business violates spiritual and ecological realities. If we pay attention, we may notice that big business gives us a lot more trouble than big government. And if we look even closer, we see how big business and big government go together. And how, for instance, former employees of big business get positions and influence in big government on a regular basis. Again, I'm no fan of big government. I don't want anybody on our backs. And we don't have autonomy in the system that has us all in its grips right now. We don't have autonomy in this system. We just do the bidding of that system, and in many cases we do so without fully realizing it. And one question we might ask is, how do we intelligently, creatively, and hopefully peacefully rebel against this? How do we recover our sanity? How do we recover our own basic goodness? Because a lot of traditions see us as basically good. We find a range of views in the wisdom traditions, but many of them see us as basically good. And it seems to me we have proof of this in our ongoing struggle against the ignorance and vice capitalism makes us so prone to. And this has been extremely valuable because it has allowed us so far, so far, to prevent the total destruction of the ecologies we all depend on. Capitalism itself, big business itself, restricts us from putting our creativity and intelligence into anything else but making products and profits. Profit is the goal and that's it. But because people really have a lot of goodness in them, they basically keep trying to fight against that, sometimes very directly, as, in, as when unions directly challenge the capitalists, sometimes whenever people are working for a capitalist and just do something good because that's what they want to do. And so we've been really lucky that we've gotten a lot of good things because people keep trying to do good. In the capitalist system, though, we are not incentivized for doing this. We are not incentivized for doing good. That is not the goal. That's not what the system does. Smith was clear about that, and we need to be clear about that, too. The system pursues wealth, power, fame, and pleasure. It's a path of ignorance and vice. It does not have wisdom, love, and beauty as its aim, and so it constantly holds those in check. It is not wise, loving, or beautiful to poison the rivers and lakes that we all depend on. But that's what capitalism is willing to do if it can make money in the process. Now, as we just noted, many wisdom traditions see us as basically good, even the Christian tradition, which has this notion of original sin. Sometimes we get too far gone with that notion, and we miss that the Christian tradition, too, has a deeper and more primordial notion of original goodness, because we were made in the very image of the divine. And that leaves us with a primordial goodness that certainly can become obscured, but it nevertheless remains in us. 
and our practice of life can remove obscurations from it and allow it to manifest itself with increasing clarity. And the Christian saints demonstrate that. There's a lot of good Christians there have been historically. Many wonderful people practicing in that tradition. And many other traditions share this kind of view or some variation on it. And no venerable tradition writes us off as completely unredeemable. I mean, that's a philosophy that doesn't even go anywhere. But it's also ridiculous because we can see that people can be good. As part of the sacred common ground of the wisdom traditions of the world, we find them standing in agreement that the level of goodness we manifest depends on our our holistic practice of life. If we refrain from evil and we practice much good, then we will presence wisdom, love, and beauty with increasing skill and grace in our every thought, word, and deed. That's precisely what makes Adam Smith's recommendation of the road to perdition so darn dangerous. Because capitalism infects us in such a way that it can perpetuate or even deepen the obscuration of our basic goodness. And it makes it so much harder for us to liberate that basic goodness when that sort of force is at work. Something that works to obscure it rather than liberated. We're going to consider a few clear examples of how capitalism affects our thinking, how it facilitates our rationalization of actions out of attunement with our basic goodness and out of attunement with the teachings of our revered spiritual, religious, and philosophical traditions. This is what makes it so important to correct Smith's dangerous ignorance. We humans have a potential to do both good and evil. That's going to depend on context. Our basic goodness makes evil far more difficult without a whole lot of rationalization. And if we live in a context rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty, evil becomes increasingly difficult and goodness becomes increasingly likely and increasingly effortless. But if we live in a context that facilitates rationalization, if we live in a context that facilitates the forgetting, the covering over of our basic goodness, that we're basically okay and basically good, if we live in a context that seduces us into values that stand in opposition to our basic goodness, then various manifestations of evil become increasingly likely we could say increasingly easy too, and at various levels of intensity, from the ethically questionable to the shockingly immoral. Now to get a feel for how capitalism as a style of consciousness and a style of thinking can begin to infect us, to see what that what does that look like? What does it produce as it starts to take over our thinking? We're just going to look through history, a few places of how this manifest? What does it look like? And we're going to start with the history of how we measure the wealth of nations. In his doctoral dissertation on American history called The Pricing of Progress, Economic Indicators and the Capitalization of American Life, Eli Cook writes about how we transitioned into thinking more and more about the wealth of nations in material 
terms rather than in ethical, spiritual terms. Cook gives some of the history of how a different sense of the wealth of nations sort of hung on in various ways. It was clinging for dear life, we could say, as capitalism developed. In the 1800s, a French lawyer named André-Michel Guerry invented moral statistics. The idea of moral statistics is that if you want to know about the health of a nation, you should check on things like education levels, crime levels, suicide, poverty, and so on. And that idea made a lot of sense to people, and it transferred to the United States. Alexander Hamilton, who in many ways seems more aligned with some of Adam Smith's dangerous ignorance, he tried to create what we might call a prototype of gross domestic product. But he failed, in large part because so many Americans at that time just didn't think of their lives in terms of money. Now, in the interest of a fuller picture, we should acknowledge that Hamilton disagreed with Smith in some key areas, probably most significantly something that has remained a dogma of capitalism, and that is the establishment of protectionist tariffs. Smith and capitalists today, when they're dealing with uh, other countries who aren't rich, they are very much against tariffs. But the United States really only succeeded, uh, and, and other capitalist uh, cultures that we now consider highly developed or rich, they succeeded through a lot of protectionist maneuvers. And Smith didn't think people should do that. Hamilton disagreed. But he certainly agreed with Smith that the wealth of nations has to do with what we now think of as gross domestic product. We can see the roots of that in Smith. But, again, the Americans of Hamilton's time didn't really agree. For a farmer of that time, the land wasn't a matter of capital, but rather a foundation of freedom. Farmers grew food for their own families. If they had more left beyond that, then they might trade some of it. If they had more left beyond that, maybe they'd try to sell some of it to have a little bit of money. But money was not the top priority, because if you're self-sufficient and you've got a community of neighbors and so on who can help you when times are tough, then you're not in real need of money. It's not such a high priority. And so when Hamilton tried to get people to tell him how much their farm was worth and tried to put things in terms of money, basically people had neither the interest nor the a way to assess it. They just didn't have any idea. But people did understand the idea of moral statistics. That hung on for a while in the United States, and people used them to try to think through certain social issues. For instance, as the Civil War approached, arguments about slavery initially hinged on moral issues. And we, we've got to be honest that there there were some debates about moral issues going on, but there was also a lot of other things going on. It's we're trying to get a feel for how how the moral issues lose ground, and how capital is already asserting itself into the thinking, and and we're looking at a kind of turning place in, in a certain sense. It's a nuanced history. But the idea is that you had a lot of people arguing about the moral issues, 
And what happened was the North tried to show its general superiority to the South by citing moral statistics. And that would include things like the number of schools and colleges, the level of poverty, and so on. But as Cook tells it, these arguments began to shift from moral statistics to what we now might call market statistics or materialistic statistics. He gives the example of a Southerner named Elwood Fisher. Fisher used market-based statistics, which he called, quote, landmarks of progress. And he tried to use them to make a case that the South was more advanced than the North because of slavery. Now, that's a kind of astonishing suggestion. Fisher accepted the path that Smith endorsed, and he claims, quote, the first object of civilized life is to accumulate wealth, end quote. And that's the very reason we would use market statistics and reject moral statistics. If the point of life were the cultivation of wisdom, love, and beauty, then we would have to figure out how to begin to track that, try to understand how well we were doing at it. But Smith put us on the road of being more concerned about money and material gain, and Elwood Fisher just ran with that. And then Fisher used statistics to show that the average white man in Maryland had about $531 worth of wealth, while the average white man in Massachusetts only had $406 of wealth, Maryland being in the South and Massachusetts in the North. He showed that the average white man in Virginia had $758 worth of wealth, whereas the average white man in New York had a mere $260 in wealth. Now, we find a variety of incredible problems with this sort of analysis, not least of which that it treats slaves as capital rather than as human beings, and it offers itself as a justification or legitimization of slavery. Now, we might try to write that off as an aberration, but the fact is, slavery kept going only while it remained profitable. As Eric Williams and other scholars have demonstrated, the profits from slavery were essential for early capitalism, and only as it became less profitable did it go away. Now, it was hanging on in the South, and we can argue about whether or not moral statistics could have helped change things. But we have to recognize that though we may want to credit the moralists of the time, it seems they had less to do with abolition than we may like to believe. The U.S. could be a special case in certain ways. Certainly in the case of Britain, Britain had gotten over it by then, and it had not remained profitable, and then it disappeared. And so we had a situation, we were set up for a situation in which declining profits would drive a shift away from slavery because Smith did nothing to put us on a road of wisdom and virtue, and instead encouraged us along the road to perdition, the road of profit, self-interest, and extrinsic rewards. And so far from being an aberration, this is just how the system works. This is how its style of thought and style of consciousness work. We sometimes fail to notice it until something goes wrong, and then we may repress or suppress our awareness 
that this is just how a consciousness infected with this kind of ignorance tends to behave. Now that was an example from, we could say, the early emergence of capitalism. It gives us a sense of how capitalism started to infect our thinking and make rationalization easier. But more recent examples are just as important, and we can cite countless of those, from big tobacco to big oil, big pharma, big chemical companies like 3M and DuPont, we already mentioned those. Big oil is an excellent example, because we have seen a deliberate and shockingly unethical denial of climate catastrophe. It's mind-blowing. And here's a rather remarkable part of their shockingly unethical conduct, It does not matter if we have sipped their Kool-Aid or not. Their breach of wisdom and virtue remains. Now, what I mean by that is that a lot of people did get seduced or programmed into the dogma from big oil. And as a result, they may think of the climate catastrophe as some kind of liberal hoax or something we can dismiss for whatever reason. But even if we held such a view, what we now know is the fossil fuel industry itself did believe in climate change for the better part of a century. So it doesn't matter what our crazy uncle or our QAnon yoga teacher believes about the climate catastrophe. The point remains that the oil and gas industry, they believe in it and have believed in it for decades, all while they lied to the rest of us. And that lie is so successful that people will come up with these rational explanations that they think of as it's solar cycles or whatever. There are all sorts of crazy ideas when the people who founded all this doubt, they themselves believed in it. <laughs> so it's really been effective. You might have heard about a recent study in the prestigious journal Science, which shows that Exxon scientists, as one example, had very accurate climate models predicting climate change as a result of human activity. I can read you a little passage here. Here's what the researchers of that recent paper wrote. Quote, Exxon Oil Company has known since the late 1970s that its fossil fuel products could lead to global warming with dramatic environmental effects before the year 2050. They're quoting there from Exxon. Dramatic environmental effects before the year 2050. The researchers continue. Additional documents then emerged showing that the U.S. oil and gas industry's largest trade association, the American Petroleum Institute, had likewise known since at least the 1950s, as had the coal industry since at least the 1960s, and electric utilities, Total Oil Company, and GM and Ford Motor Companies since at least the 1970s. That's the end of the quote. So all of these industries knew that we could see, quote, dramatic environmental effects. An earlier paper from 2017 showed that, quote, Exxon and ExxonMobil Corp. scientists overwhelmingly acknowledged that climate change is real and human-caused, end quote, while their extensive propaganda campaign served to create and perpetuate doubts about this very fact that they acknowledged. 
and to frame our thinking so that we imagined we had no alternative to burning more fossil fuel. That's what they've got, they've got us all to think. The behavior of the fossil fuel industry is so incredible that I think we need to devote a separate contemplation to how well they illustrate Adam Smith's understanding of class war. Remember, and I'm going to say it again, but Adam Smith recognized class war long before Karl Marx. And the fossil fuel industry stands out as an excellent, maybe a perfect example of what Adam Smith described. So we'll save some of those details for a later time. For now, let's move on to another example, famous one, the Ford Pinto case. Now, that's on a much smaller scale, and in some ways it contains a degree of ambiguity. Nevertheless, it created one of the most famous documents of capitalism, namely the cost-benefit analysis that Ford Motor Company provided to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Now, in that document, and you can read it, you can get it online, they laid out that the cost for producing vehicles with a reduced fire safety risk was at that time $137 million. They estimated that making those design changes would save 180 lives every year and avoid another 180 serious injuries, like having a massive burn scar for the rest of your life, maybe being in pain for the rest of your life, maybe not being able to walk for the rest of your life. Okay, so 180 deaths, 180 serious injuries. And they calculated that the benefit to society of saving those 360 people, that the benefit would be $49.5 million. Now, we don't do math like this unless we have allowed our culture and our mind to become infected with a certain kind of insanity. Now, here's the deal. That estimate on the cost to change the design, that was for the entire auto industry. But Ford Motor Company alone was making enough in profits that they could have easily covered the bill for the whole industry. But nobody was asking them to. The point is, this was not a lot of money for that huge industry. They could have covered it. But that would have required Ford Motor Company and the rest of those corporations to exist in a culture that thought that the wealth of nations had to do with the well-being of everyone rather than with the profit of a very, very few. Ford rejected making the improvements because, in the words of their report, the cost would have been more than three times the benefit. Because once capitalism has infected our thought, we can weigh lives against profits. Now, we may want to rationalize the implications of making money a measure of wealth, the wealth of nations and individuals. But it includes not only the kind of corporate behavior all of us can agree to consider unethical, it also includes the ways we allow this to infect our view of ourselves. And an astonishing example of this emerged rather recently. There's a fellow out there named Grant Cardone. He's a self-help guru of the entrepreneurial variety. He seems like a nice enough guy, really, and he has apparently made a significant amount of money. I, I don't have access to his bank account, but seems like a wealthy guy. Wealthy and powerful, influential. 
Cardone wrote a book called The 10X Rule. In that book, he refers to the 10X Rule as, quote, the holy grail for those who desire success. Seriously, if there is an end-all, be-all, then this is it, end quote. I love how he puts that in there. Seriously, and all due respect, Randall, yes, I'm playing a little cheeky, but it's okay. And oddly enough, he claims this rule applies to spiritual life as well, which means that the teachings of the great sages have nothing on Grant Cardone. He has the end-all, be-all, the alpha and the omega, we might say. And he claims, quote, the 10x rule is the one thing that will guarantee that you will get what you want in amounts greater than you ever thought imaginable. End quote. Now, he makes some fairly confusing claims. I mean, that, some of this just sounds silly, you know, as if we could make a... If you just said it with the right accent, you know, and with the right emphasis, then just reading that would be hilarious. I, I won't get too comical because I, I, I don't want to... I'm not trying to trash talk this guy. It's just a, it's a good example of how this starts to infect our thinking as people. We may think, oh, it's just the corporations, but people are, first of all, running the corporations. And then it just it goes further because this is a self-help guru with a lot of influence. Now, he says, quote, It takes the same amount of energy to have a great marriage as it does an average one, just as it takes the same amount of energy and effort to make $10 million as it does 10000 end quote. Now, this is a good example of incoherence. It doesn't make very much sense since what the whole idea of this 10x rule is that we have to put in 10 times the effort we think necessary. And he calls this massive action. That's his name for it. So it, these are just confusing claims. And this is how he puts it in the book. This is a quote. As I look back over my life, I see that the one thing that was most consistent with any success I've achieved was that I always put forth ten times the amount of activity that others did. For every sales presentation, phone call, or appointment others made, I was making ten of each. When I started buying real estate, I looked at ten times more properties than I could buy, end quote. Uh, which is also, even that last suggestion is really crazy. It's like he's insisting on running himself ragged rather than making a smart choice about what properties to look at. But the message definitely seems to be more effort in order to make more money, which is a, a particularly weird thing in our time for lots of reasons, and maybe we'll have to get to that in another contemplation. He makes space, as I said, for the 10x rule to apply to uh, spiritual things and also to family. But the vast majority of material that I saw from Cardone focuses on business and making money. Now, Cardone has a YouTube channel with over 2.3 million subscribers. So this is a fairly influential dude. And in one of his videos, we see him giving a presentation. During that presentation, he acts out a conversation between him and his mother. And here's what he says. Mama, I made $10 million in one deal. That's great. But son, I love you just the way you are. I'm like, shit. I don't love me just the way I am. 
Now, he says this like it's a good thing. He says this as if because he doesn't love himself the way he is, then he can put in ten times the effort to make ten times the money. He can't love himself for who he is if he only made ten million dollars in a single deal because he knows he could have made a hundred million. Now, this is a little bit of a confusing point. It fits with the other incoherent things Cardone says or writes. And we should be clear. Now, first of all, we're going to see that Adam Smith really touches on this, this kind of dissatisfaction. And we've already touched on this, this idea that this belongs on that, on that tombstone of humanity. You know, we, we just are not able in the capitalist system to see that we're okay. We're not able to accept ourselves as we are and really love the life that, that we have, the richness, the abundance that just is the human experience. No, we need a $10 million deal and then we're still not happy because we could have had $100 million. Now We also need to be very clear that Cardone writes things that touch on spiritual truths. Life absolutely demands passionate effort. I mean, this is part of the meaning of dangerous wisdom. One of the meanings of dangerous wisdom, of course, is that if you have real wisdom, that is dangerous to structures of power. So when we were talking about the gems of dangerous wisdom from Adam Smith, we're talking about real wisdom that is dangerous because it threatens the structures of power. If we really were to receive those gems of wisdom, then we would be so wealthy and powerful that the capitalist system couldn't survive, you see, because it tells us that that path won't make us happy. If we would receive that dangerous wisdom, we'd be done with this. There'd be no Grant Cardone with 2.3 million views because we wouldn't want to hear this. We would just laugh this out of court. And it's going to get worse. I mean, it's, it's already a little bit crazy, right? I, I can't be satisfied because I only made $10 million in a single deal, and I could have made 100 But he's going to go further, and so stay tuned. We're going to get to that in a second. But this other meaning of dangerous wisdom is also important, that if you take a little fragment, a truth, you know, that, like it, it, Buddha's got the Eightfold Path, and one of the elements of that is skillful and realistic effort. And he is saying that you're going to have to put some passion into cultivating wisdom, love, and beauty. Now, he doesn't have a 10x rule. And in fact, part of skillful effort is to stop doing our lives so much and to arrive at a more skillful effort in life. It's called non-doing. It's not called 10x. It's called non-doing. But yes, the things that we love are going to demand passion. They're going to demand effort. And sometimes they're going to, they're going to demand a little blood, sweat, and tears. It, that can be part of our spiritual life. But the danger then is if you take a little fragment. See, Buddha has a whole holistic thing. It's an eightfold path. And that eight, those eight elements are just elaborated into many, many, many more. So there's a full holistic ecology of wisdom, love, and beauty. If you go running around with this, here's the one thing, just 10x your effort then you can 10x your effort into insanity. A major question that we all have to answer, for instance, is what we're going to direct our passionate effort toward. And Cardone clearly directs more of his effort toward material things than spiritual ones. At least that's what it seems. But here's one of the more interesting things, or maybe it's the most interesting thing, at least on this video, this particular YouTube video, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote him here, but you might want to prepare yourself for a strange moment in his presentation. He's giving a presentation to what seems like a group of business people. 
And this is what he says to them. Quote, If I made 400 grand a year, I would be embarrassed with myself as a husband, a father, basically as a human being. End quote. That quote deserves a full stop. That's why I stopped there. But in fact, he does continue. So full stop, he's embarrassed as a human being. Then he says, quote, 400 grand. How do you make sense of $35,000 a month? You guys haven't done the math. You have not done the math because you cannot live on 400 grand a year, end quote. Now that might come as a surprise to a good number of us. We can see, though, what happens when capitalism infects our thought. 400 grand a year is just, it's not, it's not realistic and we should be embarrassed. But then Cardone goes on to claim that he can't even live on $2.7 million a year because his private jet, quote, eats $2.7 million a year. Now, in this video, Cardone also claims, I think it's in this video, he claims to be one of the top social media influencers. And as we noted, his YouTube channel's got over 2.3 million subscribers. And the point of, of emphasizing that is that this sort of message he can send out to large numbers of people, further seducing them. And, and it's not; these are not his ideas. This is that capitalism thinks through us. It, it just makes us its vehicle. It makes us its voice box. It makes us its body and mind. But then people like Cardone further influence others and it's not because he invented this thinking, but because capitalism infected him. Now, I have to give a big caveat here. I'm not a Grant Cardone scholar, obviously. I'm really not a very scholarly type. That's one of the reasons I left academia. It's really a place for scholars, and I'm a philosopher, not a professor of philosophy or a scholar. And for all I know, Grant Cardone might have written and said a thousand truly insightful things. And naturally, he may want to say that some of what he was speaking about in this video was rhetorical. But it doesn't come across as ironically rhetorical. In other words, it's not like Cardone is saying that no one should really be ashamed of themselves for making $400,000 a year because that's just too small an amount. Rather, he really does seem to mean it. I mean, he gives a lot of emphasis and goes into these details of saying how ridiculous it is and even 2.7 wouldn't be enough. And the suggestion that a person earning $400,000 a year would or should be embarrassed as a human being because of the poverty of that sum, it seems absurd. In some cultures, a person just couldn't have that thought at all for a variety of reasons. In some cultures, a person could never think that their lack of money should make them ashamed of themselves. In some cultures, only a lack of wisdom and virtue could bring genuine shame. Only doing something ignorant or unethical should really bring shame. And we naturally experience shame when we do unethical things. That's appropriate. But we should never feel ashamed because $400,000 a year isn't enough to make us a good human being or a good parent. 
This sort of insanity can only happen in a rather desperately ignorant culture. Adam Smith himself might find this development shocking and disappointing if he could see it. At the same time, he knew very well that this possibility existed if we were to follow the road that he actually recommended to us. Now, part of his dangerous wisdom includes two general things. His recognition that money corrupts us and cannot make us happy. That's, those are the three gems. We can just generalize them as one thing. And then the second really great piece of dangerous wisdom is his analysis of class war. And both of those things sort of sound a bit like Karl Marx. I think a little bit. And as we keep reminding ourselves, Adam Smith called out the class war and the evils of capitalism long before Marx. And we have to remind ourselves of these things because the dominant culture likes to keep us away from thinking about them with any clarity. Among other things, Smith worried about our tendency to identify with the rich. Not every culture has rich and poor. So Smith is a, he's talking about the dominant culture here. And this is what he writes, quote, The disposition to admire and almost to worship the rich and the powerful and to despise or at least to neglect persons of poor and mean condition is the great and most universal cause of the corruption of our moral sentiments. That wealth and greatness are often regarded with the respect and admiration which are due only to wisdom and virtue, and that the contempt of which vice and folly are the only proper objects is often most unjustly bestowed upon poverty and weakness, has been the complaint of moralists in all ages. End quote. Elsewhere, he writes, quote, The great mob of mankind are the admirers and worshippers and, what may seem more extraordinary, most frequently the disinterested admirers and worshippers of wealth and greatness. End quote. Now that puts a sharp point on the matter if we understand what he's saying because we don't always use language like this in our time. When he calls us disinterested admirers and worshippers, See, and that's the, langu the language there. Notice that he says, the great mob of mankind are the admirers and worshippers and what may seem more extraordinary, most frequently the disinterested admirers and worshippers of wealth and greatness. And what he means there is he's saying that we're, we don't only ad admire and worship wealth and power, wealth and greatness, which could also be celebrity, but we behave like objective admirers and worshippers. That's what, when he says it's even more extraordinary, we behave like disinterested admirers, as if we admire and worship the rich and powerful on the basis of reality itself, rather than on the basis of our fear, craving, and ignorance. So he's outlining a subtle and profound form of self-deception. Why do we think Rand Cardone has 2.3 million plus subscribers? 
Why do we think we give so much credence to what Elon Musk tweets and so on? We act as if people like Grant Cardone, Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Jeff Bezos, and Steve Jobs are, objectively speaking, truly great and visionary human beings whom we should naturally admire. But Smith himself saw right through this. And he sensed how it corrupts our ethical sensibilities. Now, again, he sort of had to because otherwise he'd be laughed out of the game. I mean, he was friends with one of the great philosophers of the, well, great professors of philosophy of the Western tradition, David Hume. So he's hanging around with intelligent people. He read Plato and all the good stuff. He can't just go around saying something other than this. But he also just knows better. We all do. Yet, oddly enough, in another moment of incoherence, Smith actually says in the same passage that this, quote, disposition to admire and almost to worship the rich and powerful and to despise or at least to neglect persons of poor and mean condition is actually, quote, necessary both to establish and maintain the distinction of ranks and the order of society. I find that shocking. Because this is Adam Smith saying that the very thing he refers to as, quote, the great and most universal cause of the corruption of our moral sentiments, end quote, he also accepts that so that we can preserve class structure. It's like he's lost his mind. I mean, this really seems schizophrenic here. This is, a, this is incoherent. It's a divided soul. And instead of helping to resolve this complaint of moralists of all ages, as he puts it, instead of helping us resolve this complaint, Smith shrugs his shoulders and says, well, you know, let's just follow the path of materialism. We'll return to that in a moment, but let's also consider another moment of dangerous wisdom from Adam Smith. Smith argued that there are, quote, three different orders of people. Now, this is where he lays out his sense of class warfare. The three great orders of people are, quote, those who live by rent, those who live by wages, and those who live by profit, end quote. Smith says, the interests of those who live by wages is, quote, strictly connected with the interest of the society, end quote. But that is not so for those who live by profit. So Smith recognizes that profit is not, strictly speaking, an inherent social good, not the way wisdom and virtue are inherent social goods. Obviously, profit can't be an inherent social good. It's a thing we invented, right? We can note the irony. Why would we preference the pursuit of goals that have no inherent social good. Why would we do that? Why would we preference the pursuit of goals that have no inherent social good rather than pursuing inherently positive ends? And here's what Marx, I mean, Adam Smith, he just sounds like Marx here again. Here's what Adam Smith says about class warfare. He says, the interests of those who live by labor and wages align with the interests of society as a whole. But those who live by wages often lack the time, 
the resources, the influence, and the access to information and access to those in power to understand what's in their own interest and then to make it happen. That makes sense. As working class people, we we don't always have the time and energy to read up on everything we might need to know in order to cultivate our best interests and the best interests of our society. Moreover, we might not even know where to get the information we need. And even if we did get the information we need, and even if we did have time to digest it, we wouldn't have the kind of access and influence to reliably get good things to happen. Now, none of this has to do with the character or intelligence of people who live by labor and wages. It's about our whole lifestyle and livelihood in the dominant culture, our whole philosophy of life. Smith says that the capitalists, that is, those who live by profit, they accumulate so much wealth that those who have power have to listen to them. And we see this so clearly in our time. In the United States, we basically have a form of legalized bribery. Someone who writes a check big enough to a politician or political action group will have the kind of access to politicians that ordinary citizens will never have. They go out and have dinners with them. They get invitations to the White House. We all know how this goes. These big donors-only dinners. A large donation effectively serves as a down payment on future legislation. We can find cases of this going on every day at all levels of government. We had a rather famous case a few years back in 2014 when Jamie Dimon, famous banker, was able to call individual federal legislators to try and convince them to make changes to the Dodd-Frank bill that he and other bankers wanted to see. These were changes that affected the derivatives market, the one that blew us up in 0708. If the law went in their favor, in the bankers' favor, as it eventually did, the bankers stood to make roughly $35 billion. And so they happily spent $600 million lobbying to get things to go their way, just for this one thing. Not to mention campaign contributions. You aren't going to get legislators to take direct calls from you unless you have the money and influence to help them get in power and stay in power. And Adam Smith knew it. We can cite the oil industry here, too. And the very embarrassing case of Keith McCoy, if you haven't heard of this one, it's just a delight. Keith McCoy was Senior Director of Federal Relations at ExxonMobil. Now, Senior Director of Federal Relations is corporate speak for a powerful lobbyist. Federal Relations, we know what this means. McCoy spoke quite candidly to a person he thought was interviewing him for a potential job. In fact, he was being interviewed by Greenpeace. Now, to give a little bit of context, the interview happened before the last election cycle, and so he's talking about the 2022 class of of, uh, legislators. And when he was talking about how he influenced legislators, this is what McCoy said, quote, the 2022 class is focused on re-election, so I know I have them. You can have those conversations with them because they're a captive audience. They know they need you, and I need them. End quote. 
And then he went on to say, We need Congressman so-and-so to introduce this bill. We need him to make a floor statement. We need him to send a letter. You name it, we've asked for everything. End quote. I just, I love that. You name it, we've asked for everything. The oil companies spend millions and millions of dollars on lobbying, and it's worth it. And a recent study shows us just how much it's worth it. A recent study shows that the oil and gas industry have managed an average profit, an average profit of $2.8 billion a day for the last 50 years. Their total profits, this one industry, since 1970 are roughly $52 trillion. Dollars. That's a trillion dollars a year in profit. As Aviel Verbruggen, the author of the study, put it, quote, It's a huge amount of money. You can buy every politician, every system with all this money, and I think this happened. It protects them from political interference that may limit their activities, end quote. No one calls this bribery even though, well, I shouldn't say no one. I mean, you and I are doing it right now, but let's just say you're not going to hear this called bribery in the mainstream news, not to be one of these people who talks about the mainstream media. I'm just saying we don't call this like it is publicly in a way that's going to get anything done. We just don't really, really face this as bribery, even though an objective examination reveals it as such. And even stranger... We, we do know that this is how things work, and we refuse to take a stand against it. Worse yet, the CEO of Exxon can then deny that this is how they do business. You know, they can repudiate McCoy and say, oh, that's not really how we do business. And, and then we sort of don't say much, as if we tacitly, tacitly accept that we could take this denial seriously. Well, you know, so the CEO must denied it, so of course they're not really doing that. They're not really controlling everything. They haven't really bought all the systems with their $52 trillion in profits. It's almost like we can't face up to the reality of our situation. Instead, we blame our problems on everything but their real cause. And this is where the shadow starts to get activated and we start projecting and so on. And then conservatives are fighting about liberals and making fun of liberal idiots or something. And it just goes back and forth like this. And Smith understood this. He said the capitalists not only have wealth that gets the attention of those in power, but they know their own interests better than those who live by labor and wages. And that makes a lot of sense, because Smith realized that the capitalist, as a capitalist, has only material interests. And they have, really, only one interest. How can I make more money? That's, the, that's all they want. So their interests are really narrow. Smith recognized that that singular interest has no necessary connection with the true well-being of individuals or their society. Indeed, in so many cases, the interests of the capitalists are diametrically opposed to the interests of society. In other words, their wealth is our ilth. It's the opposite of wealth. And Smith understood that, but then he was saying that the interests of those who live by labor and wages do overlap. You see, he's calling this out. He's saying the interests of the capitalists, 
They do not overlap. They are not. They are often antagonistic to the interests of the society. But the capitalist knows their interests really, really well because they spend all day thinking about that one question: How do I make more money? The interests of those who live by labor and wages; those interests do align with the interests of society. But the problem is, those interests are varied and complex. Money's uniform and simple by comparison. It's a lot easier to make money. Then it is to become truly wise, compassionate, and graceful. It's a lot easier to make a corporation profitable than it is to make a culture and its citizens vibrant and healthy. Smith saw the same thing that we see today: that the capitalists will influence legislation in ways that benefit them, even if it hurts everyone else, and that's a huge problem. Now, this is what. Smith wrote, "Prepare yourself for this rather Marxist analysis." I'm going to quote it. Smith writes, quote, "The proposal of any new law or regulation of commerce, which comes from this order, that is the capitalist, ought always to be listened to with great precaution, and ought never to be adopted till after having been long and carefully examined." Not only with the most scrupulous, but with the most suspicious attention, it comes from an order of men whose interest is never exactly the same with that of the public, who have generally an interest to deceive and even to oppress the public, and who accordingly have, upon many occasions, both deceived and oppressed it. End quote. Now that sounds like some sort of Marxist rag, but that's Adam Smith, Captain Capitalism himself, observing the nature of class war, the very class war that we have, the one that even Warren Buffett says that we have, and that his class already won. Smith says the interest of the capitalist is never, never exactly the same as the interest of ordinary citizens, and he says that as a class. Not necessarily each and every individual, but as a class, the capitalists will lie and oppress to get what they want, and we see this with abundant clarity, even in the examples we've already considered. But if you want further evidence, you can look up the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC. It's a lobbying group that helps those with wealth and power actually write. Model legislation that gets used all over the U.S. at both the state and national level. Now, this is not always easy to track down. They're a very private group, and it's hard to tell what's going on. But we certainly do have some evidence that corporations have a hand in writing our laws. And furthermore, by means of the revolving door between big government and big business, what you have is former corporate overlords and corporate executives becoming part of the government. I mean, crazy example, Rex Tillerson, right? So people from corporate America, from big business, go in to big government and get jobs where then they are friendly regulators, and then former government employees who were once supposed to be playing the role of regulators then get hired to go into the private sector to take advantage of all their government connections, and all this is. With the single goal of doing what Smith described, lying and oppressing in order to further the interests of capital. And let's be very clear: this has nothing 
to do with villainizing capitalists or hating the rich and powerful. Completely the contrary. It is about having compassion for both capitalists and workers. It's about recovering wisdom, compassion, and grace, all of which capitalism strips from us, whether we're a capitalist or a worker. For example, it is not indigenous to the soul to live by means of lying, aggression, oppression, and greed. And we should see it as a tragic loss that people get seduced into such behavior because those very people, the people who wrote the memorandum for the Ford Motor Company, this guy McCoy, the lobbyist for Exxon, the scientists at Exxon, the propagandists at Exxon, all the people that we've considered and many more beyond, all those people have the very same capacity for wisdom, love, and beauty that anyone else has. And something in them wants their energies directed in that way. In fact, Smith openly recognizes that our soul sees right through the money game. And maybe we can get to that in a minute. But another issue here we should consider is how we can arrive at a more accurate diagnosis of our situation. Because we tend to see the capitalist as a visionary, as a determined, disciplined person who makes money by means of intelligence and force of will. Now, in fact, the capitalist, as we've tried to suggest, is a pawn of capitalism, a mere instrument. They make money because the apparatus of capitalism moves through them which means they make money by means of a combination of ignorance, cleverness, and luck. Let's take an example. What on earth did Elon Musk do to become for a while the richest person on earth? The pandemic hit, and Elon Musk got even richer than ever. He didn't do anything valuable to anyone's well-being, but somehow he got richer off of an international crisis, and he wasn't alone. During the pandemic, the wealth of billionaires in the U.S. alone grew by almost $2 trillion. We're talking about a small number of obscenely rich people. It's not the 1%. It's not even the 0.1%. We're talking about less than 0. 0.00%. 0.3% of the population. 0.0003% of the population. That's a lot of decimal places. We're talking about less than a thousand people who made almost $2 trillion because we had a global health crisis. That makes no sense. Why would such profits arise, that level of profit on the basis of a health crisis? That people are making money off of sickness. Moreover, we know that people with that level of wealth have great skill in avoiding taxes. They may pay an effective tax rate of less than 1% in some cases. And we could also note that the investments of the wealthiest people produce incredible amounts of pollution. We're just talking about their investments, not their lifestyle. A report by Oxfam demonstrated that, quote, the investments 
of 125 of the world's richest billionaires emit 3 million tons of carbon a year, which amounts to more than a million times the average for a person in the bottom 90% of income earners on the planet. That's a rather startling thing. That's just their investments. Now, returning to profit from the global health crisis, the very same pandemic that increased the wealth of a tiny minority pushed millions into extreme poverty. The number was 100 million people driven into poverty in the year 2020. While huge profits went into the hands of a small number of elite capitalists, people applauded the booming stock market. But once relief money got into the hands of working people, inflation suddenly crept in. Now that's a complex event, but it seems awfully suspicious that things break down once those who live by labor and wages get a little more money. And we know that at least in some cases of rising prices, those prices went up explicitly to increase profit and not because of increased costs. The whole thing seems to fit with Smith's general notion that what is in the interest of the capitalist never exactly fits with the interests of the workers or the society as a whole. And we have to get clearer about how catastrophic all of this is. Now, some of it, I don't know, maybe it sounds innocent, or maybe people think of this as a pragmatic solution. That's a phrase that insults the philosophy of pragmatism. The idea is that Smith made the only rational choice. This is the most rational system we can have. It's a ridiculous rationalization. It makes zero sense, since it declares choosing ignorance and immorality over wisdom and virtue is a pragmatic thing to do, that it's somehow a good or rational thing to do. And it fails to acknowledge the catastrophe that this entails, which we see unfolding all around us, and we've considered some of the examples of the negative consequences. In endorsing capitalism, Smith effectively tells us that we should organize our culture on the basis of ignorance and a lack of virtue. He tells us to organize our culture on the basis of a system that commands us all to focus on making products rather than making people, to focus on making profit rather than making a better world. That's not merely a counterintuitive suggestion. It's just plainly illogical and unethical, and it stands in contrast to the teachings of the wisdom traditions. And so we see very clearly that Adam Smith was not a sage, but just another intellectual. And it's so funny, we're anti-intellectual today, and this guy's just clearly another intellectual who had some pretty silly ideas. In endorsing capitalism, Smith endorses a system that can never, can never, will never, provide true happiness, true peace, true well-being, true virtue, and the fulfillment of our highest potential. In fact, the system has to do the opposite. It has to do the opposite. The capitalist system can't survive if we become truly happy, truly at peace, truly wise and virtuous. And Smith himself pointed this out. He pointed out that such people have no interest in the things 
capitalists need to do and need to have going on in order to make money. Capitalism depends on a constant manufacture of needs and desires. Even ones we don't have, that's the idea. It's manufacturing craving. It exists by fueling fear, craving, distraction, and general ignorance. That's its engine. Our true happiness is antithetical to the capitalist framework. And so the operation of this massive machinery that we call capitalism must keep wisdom, love, and beauty at bay. That's why education in this culture serves to protect citizens from philosophy, from nature, from art. We have to have a marginalization of philosophy, nature, and art in order to keep this machine moving. Philosophy has to be relegated to some kind of intellectual abstraction, not the cultivation of wisdom, love, and beauty. Now, we've touched on some of the ways we see this system working against wisdom, love, and beauty. And and we can briefly mention a few more general patterns. For instance, a natural disaster increases gross domestic product, as do man-made disasters, such as blowing up a mountain to extract resources. A war means massive profits. Divorces result in more revenue. A system-oriented toward our genuine well-being would not profit from disaster, war, the breakdown of relationships, and other forms of suffering. If we set up our culture according to what we think is right, if we organize ourselves on the basis of wisdom, love, and beauty, rather than giving up because we don't quite know how to do that, then we would consider peace far more valuable than war. We would consider harmony with our ecologies far more valuable than disasters and extractions, and we would consider healthy, resilient relationships far more valuable than struggling or failing ones, or even absent ones. And we could even add in there digital ones, which are just not as vitalizing. And we've done a lot of good work here. We're almost to the conclusion of, of this contemplation of Adam Smith's dangerous ignorance. And we're going to get to a really key moment. Maybe it's the key moment of Adam Smith's ignorance that still reverberates with us today. We still have to deal with this foolishness. But it seems like a good idea to pause. We, we've just, it's, this is a lot. And I usually don't even like to go 90 minutes sometimes. I think that can be a long time. When I used to teach in the university, had class that would be 90 and as long as it's fairly common class schedule. And I know you're able to take breaks and all of that, but I think maybe it's good to just come to a stopping point. And then if you want to continue, we'll try to release part two with, with this contemplation so that you have the full image of Smith's dangerous ignorance. But in the meantime, just while you're pausing, if you think of any questions reflections, stories about the insanities of capitalist culture, send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Please do join us for the wrap-up of the Dangerous 
Ignorance of Adam Smith. And of course, this series will continue. We'll be doing more dialogues and more of these solo contemplations where it's just you and I together. And I look forward to thinking through these things with you. Until next time, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them. <laughs>